to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. Let us turn in a, a scriptures to Romans chapter 8. If you have the Bible in the pew in front of you, it'll be on page 944. Very thankful to be back with you after two weeks away. I'm thankful for the opportunity to attend MTW's mission conference and to attend to my new grandson as well in Mississippi the next week. We had a really refreshing time. And I thank you for that privilege. We always miss being with the people of God here. In chapter 8, Paul begins by talking about how there is no condemnation for us in Christ, how we have been set free in Christ from the life of sin that we had, which was done through Christ's uh, defeating of sin on the cross, so that now we would walk in a new life. And in verses 5 through 8, he talks about the difference of those who live in the spirit and the flesh, but particularly what it's like to live in the flesh. Verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And then verses 7 and 8, particularly the life set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So after talking about how we've been set free in Christ, he begins to talk about that, you know, that we are in the spirit and not the flesh. But in so doing, he describes something of what it is to be in the flesh. That's how that section ends, verses 1 through 8. These are some of the marks of those who are in the flesh, hostile to God, do not submit, cannot submit. They cannot please God. And so now our passage in verses 9 through 11 <clears throat> And there's a a big change at this point, a a contrast uh, in describing us who are in the Spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who raised Christ, uh, Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, let us pray. <clears throat> o oh Lord, we pray that you would bless our understanding of this word, not just to understand what Paul is saying, but Lord, for these words to grip our hearts for you to give us faith to believe these words and to be conformed to this word, this gospel, this good news. Lord, that we might embrace Christ in new ways because of of your word. 
this, this vehicle, Lord, of getting you, uh, this, this means of laying hold of God himself through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray you would give us an understanding, a deeper understanding uh, of your spirit and who the spirit is and what he does for his people. Bless us, Lord, that your name will be lifted up. We pray it for the glory of Christ. Amen. Uh, our day is one of intense confusion, great confusion, in regard to the things called spiritual or of the Spirit, both within the church and outside of the church. Uh, within this church, we are told that there are those who have the Spirit, who really are spiritual, who really are of the Holy Spirit, and many, many who are Christians, but they don't have the Spirit or don't have the Spirit in the right way. But then outside the church, spiritual is is in. In, in fact, it, it's, you know, Oprah is is spiritual, and everybody on Oprah is spiritual. I, I saw a special program of a, a healer down in South America uh, on Oprah, and the whole of the description of this healer was inundated with ideas about the spiritual and the body just being a shell and what's really us is the spirit. You see this in a movie like Avatar and others where the body is just viewed as a temporary shell and, and our, our spiritual life or our, is like an energy that we borrow from the great life out there and then it returns and goes back. An Eastern thought. These, these ideas of what is spiritual are just running everywhere around us. And so a passage like this is so important for us to tie ourselves down to the reality, the true foundation of who is this spirit? By whom does he come? How do we relate to this spirit? What does he really do for us? And what are the marks of those who have the true spirit of God? These are very important issues for us. And I think all of us have some uh, confusion about the spirit. And hopefully this passage, which one, one writer called it epigrammic in the sense that so much is packed in, it's like every phrase has a whole world of meaning in it. So, uh, But somebody like me, well, I can do it in 30 minutes, so here we go. No, that's a joke, too. Uh, hopefully, you who are visiting, please uh, bear with me. Um, so, first of all, we're going to talk uh, about the, the Spirit, although we can't separate the Spirit from resurrection, because that's what this passage is about. It's about... We have the Spirit, therefore we will be raised. But the first part I want to try to pull together the threads of thought about the Spirit, and then we'll more focus about resurrection. But they're all they're they're interrelated. Okay, but we'll first talk about the Spirit and then the resurrection. Um, first of all, we in thinking about the Spirit, we must not and cannot separate the Spirit from. God's Word, okay? Cannot separate being in the Spirit or having the Spirit from God's Word. Because of the very context here, it, it, it focuses on that. The mind set on the flesh, hostile to God, does not submit to God's law. It cannot submit to God's law. It doesn't please God. But you are not of the flesh, you're of the Spirit. And the implication is, you do fulfill that word. You do seek to please God. You do seek to submit yourself to God because you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. 
This is the whole point uh, at the beginning in, of this chapter in verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This principle, this governing principle of sin that leads to death. You've been set free from that in Christ Jesus. And it is the Spirit that has done that. The Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the Spirit that has given you life in Christ Jesus, this Spirit has set you free from that life of sin and death. And that's why he can say on the heels of, of uh, the, the one set on the flesh, that is the person just in himself or herself is naturally hostile to God, against God, does not want to hear about God's Word, does not search out God's Word, is not exploring God's Word, is not wanting to memorize and know God's Word and live that Word out, is not enjoying and delighting in that Word. No, uh, he is opposed to that Word, ignores that Word. God's Word means nothing to the man who is in the flesh. Not so if you're in the Spirit. Not so if you're in the Spirit. And so, to use the word spiritual and someone talking about, well, I have a communication with God, I have a relationship with God. Some people maybe even think I'm called by God, I'm an instrument of God, I have knowledge of God. But they have no relationship to His Word There is nothing truly spiritual there. Anything that is truly spiritual must be about God's Word and have to do with God's Word. And so, there must be a submission to Him based on His Word. does not submit specifically to God's law. Now, of course, all of this is based on the gospel that we are saved and rescued in Christ Jesus. But what becomes prominent in chapter 8 is specific obedience to the will of God. That's the fruit. That is part of this salvation. This is what happens uh, to a person who knows Christ. So there's a character based on the Word. There's a down-to-earth effect of the Spirit's presence in our, in our salvation. It shows the nature of salvation is that there is a change in my life. The nature of salvation is that the relationship that I had to God of hostility and refusing His Word is changed. And I have a basic, though not perfect, but a basic submission, willingness to know His Word and to live that Word out. It's just the nature of the relationship that I have with God. We can't say we have a relationship with God that doesn't involve, at its essence, submission to God. Because He is Lord of the universe. He's our creator. He's the one that sustains our lives. He has all authority over us. And for us to say that I'm somehow spiritual, I somehow have a relationship to God, but fundamentally I live my own life and do what I want to do. No, no. At the root, at the root of our relationship is this submission, this glad submission. And again, I'll say it over and over, not perfect, but it must be uh, sincere and, and real in our life. It also shows the nature of faith. When we trust Him, we trust Him as Lord. We entrust our lives to Him. Faith is nothing less than a giving over uh, of my life to His uh, will. And so there's really no explanation. It's just assumed that those who are in the flesh are hostile. Those who are in the Spirit are not. 
Those who are in the flesh don't submit to the law of God. Those who are in the Spirit do as a way of life. And of course, you can't say that you submit to His Word if you ignore His Word by and large. It's not magic. The Word doesn't just come to you through the atmosphere, you know. (laughs) It doesn't just somehow happen that you know His Word. It assumes if I'm seeking to submit myself that I have a relationship to that Word. It just assumes that. And that's what the Spirit does for us. If you are in the Spirit, that's the same thing that Paul had said about the Jews in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, because in this very passage, he talks about the uncircumcised man keeping the word, keeping the will of God. And then he goes on to say that's because his heart has been changed. His heart has been changed by the Spirit. And he says even those who are proposed to be Jews are not real Jews unless there's that heart change that causes them to give their lives up to God. And so, I, there's no idea of forgiven, headed for heaven, redeemed people who are in rebellion against their God. Okay? It's just, this is not, that's not salvation. Salvation is not, I get saved from hell to do what I want to on earth. It's not salvation. Because I'm lost. I'm, I'm under the governing of destructive sin and bringing dishonor to God. Salvation is, I've really been changed. I've been rescued from a life of, of dominance of sin. And so, no matter how I might profess allegiance and fidelity and, and honor, no matter how I may say that I'm spiritual or talk about spirituality, no matter how I might say, well, I'm close to God and I pray to God, if I have no relationship to His Word, I can't say with assurance that the Spirit has taken hold of my life. And so this is clearly a work of God. It is God's Spirit. And that's the encouraging thing here, uh, that... If you belong to this Lord, you will begin to manifest His Lordship in your life. That's encouraging. It's challenging and it can be convicting. But in the end, it's encouraging. That's what Jesus does for you. That's what His Spirit will do for you. If you're in the Spirit, if you belong to Christ, this is what He will do for you. Uh, I used to... Uh, hold to the idea of the carnal Christian, you know, the, the Christian who is fleshly, the Christian who is under the flesh, Christian who gives himself to everything but obedience to God, but he's still going to heaven. And then I would come along with another little uh, booklet, some of you know what I'm talking about, that had somebody receive the Holy Spirit after that. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But here, there is no such thing. There is certainly Christians who disobey for a season, Christians who wander for a season, but Christians who are marked completely by their life, a life of disobedience cannot be believers because God does a better job of saving than that. He does a better job of saving than that. But be encouraged. This is salvation. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get busy and get going. It's, oh Lord, fulfill in me your glorious salvation of your spirit so laying hold of my life that I begin to submit myself to you gladly. Oh Lord, save me.
See, it's salvation. It's salvation. So, spiritual, the spirit must not be separated from the word, but also the spirit must not be separated from the person of Jesus Christ. Notice the terminology here. Probably did as we read it. He just exchanges these terms. The spirit of God, if the, if the spirit of God dwells in you, he speaks of in verse 9, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ. Well, wait, where's the Spirit of Christ coming in? You're talking about the Spirit of God. Obviously, and everyone agrees that Paul is talking about the same person, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And even then in verse 10, but if Christ is in you. So three things right back to back. The Spirit of God is in you. The Spirit of Christ is in you. Christ is in you. He's talking about the same thing. So that Christ indwells us By the Holy Spirit. That is how Christ comes to us. It is only through Christ also that the Spirit is known and received. So, talk about being spiritual out there in the world. Talk about a spiritual life. I'm into a spiritual life. Whatever spirit that is, whatever spirituality that is, the Spirit, the only Spirit... And I could say all true, benevolent, positive spirituality is only through Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this Spirit of God honors Christ, is sent by Christ, is of Christ, represents Christ, focuses on Christ, lifts up Christ, holds forth Christ, promotes Christ, and makes Christ known. Any other spirit is not the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so, in this passage as well, you see... That if you have the Spirit, you have Christ. Because the Spirit brings Christ to us. Through the indwelling of the Spirit, Christ is present to us. And the indwelling of the Spirit is the very manner by which Christ indwells us. Such is the unity of Christ and the Spirit. And so, the Spirit of God... Given through Christ, the Spirit's primary purpose is to reveal Christ to us and bring Christ to us. Any other spirit or spirituality is not the spirit of the living and true God who made heaven and earth. This is the Spirit, and He's to be had through Christ. Outside of Christ, there's no true spirituality. Outside of Christ, we cannot and do not have the Spirit He is the one exalted to the right hand of God to give out now the Spirit of God. And now it comes to us in His very name. He owns the Spirit. He has the fullness of Spirit, He says. And this is the fulfillment of God's great plan for the Spirit to be poured out on all nations. So this is not an exclusive reserve for the the Jewish people. In fact, Paul in Galatians 3 says, This is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham that in you all the nations will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth, every last people group of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And Paul says, This is fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit. 
So for anybody in any nation, anywhere, we have to say, no, spirituality is to be had in Jesus. Any access to God, any access to the Spirit of God is to be had in Jesus. And any spirituality you think you have is not the Spirit of God. That's to be had in Christ. Only with union in Christ is there the Spirit of God. Well, so the Spirit is not to be separated from the Word. The Spirit is not to be separated from Christ. And the Spirit cannot be separated from being a Christian. Okay? I've I've touched on that. If you have the Spirit, you have Christ. There are those who say you you can be a Christian, but you not really have the Spirit. Some of, some of us do have the Spirit who speak in tongues or who do miracles or whatever, supposedly, I would has as, as a little caveat there. Uh, and, and the rest of people don't really have the Spirit. We are the spiritual ones. But in this passage, he says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. There is no Christian, no Christian anywhere a true believer that does not have the Spirit of Christ, or else he's not a believer, he's not a Christian. Because if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. You're, you, uh, you do not belong to him. That is the way Christ comes to us. He comes to us in no other way. He indwells us through the Holy Spirit. And so if we do not have the Spirit, we do not have Christ. It's the only way you have Christ. Otherwise, you and I are an unbeliever. Paul equates this in Acts chapter 2 when he's proclaiming the gospel. Very first sermon, he says, Repent and receive the promise of God. The promise is the Holy Spirit. It's, it's really at, at that point, he, he does talk about being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, Receive the promise of the Spirit. It's like the whole of salvation is caught up in the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, the Spirit is the one who brings all of Christ to us, who applies everything that Christ has done to us. And so if we don't have the Spirit, we have nothing. And this is challenging because you have to ask yourself, well, do I have the Spirit? Am I manifesting the Spirit in my life? We've already talked about manifesting the Spirit by my desire to submit to His Word, manifesting the Spirit by my desire for that Word and and seeking to please God and having a desire and enjoyment of that. We can think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, goodness, kindness, self-control. These are the actual things that come into our lives because of the Spirit, evidences of the Spirit being in our lives. That's challenging and we can begin to think, gosh, I don't know if I have the Spirit. But I want to to use it as an encouragement to say, this is for sure what the Spirit will do in your life. And, And don't think that it's some special privilege for a few that they get the Spirit while you don't. No, you have the Spirit, you have Christ, you have the full blessing of the Spirit. You have the full life of the Spirit. You will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And you can expect that and pray for it and, and, and trust God for that. Because He gives His Spirit to all believers. That is the, uh, it's not just that you are in a position 
we can't be just the fact that we attend church or we're some position in the church or we teach in the church or have leadership in the church. The whole thing that Paul says here, here's the issue. Do you have the Spirit of God? It doesn't matter anything else. Do you have the Spirit of God? And again, that's what he's saying about the Jews. He says, not a Jew if you're one outwardly and you go through all the sacrifices and you, you dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Is your heart circumcised by the Spirit? That's the issue. It's the issue for every one of us. And being members at Fort Worth Presbyterian Church in and of itself is not a guarantee that you have the Spirit of God. But it's at the same time, it's not to say, okay, gosh, I'm going to doubt everything and I'm not a Christian and I don't know if... But it's to ask this serious question, am I beginning to manifest the presence of the, of the Spirit in my life? You see, in that sense, every believer is spiritual. Every believer. Spiritual capital S. <clears throat> and that's your joy. That's your privilege. <clears throat> that's your strength. That's your glory. <clears throat> that you have the Spirit. And this idea of the Spirit dwelling in us, as it, he says in verse 9, and verse 11, the Spirit who dwells in you, or Christ in you. You see, by saying those together, the Spirit dwelling in you and Christ in you, we see that Christ is in us through the indwelling of the Spirit. And that, <clears throat> that really is reflective of the Shekinah glory, the glory of God dwelling in the uh, tabernacle and dwelling in the temple, and now He dwells in each of us as a temple and in us collectively as a temple. We're the resident place for His glory. And to say that He indwells us is to talk about His sovereign possession of us. It's to talk about His ownership of us. It's just a happy thought that the Spirit of God takes us and owns us, possesses us. An older writer said, it's His settled, permanent, penetrative influence. See? penetrating into our lives, involving himself with every corner of our life. It's, it's an active indwelling. It speaks of the ongoing operation of the Spirit in our life, governing us. It speaks of his intimacy with us, how he governs our existence. It, it really is a way of describing what Christ does for us every day in the very heart of our lives by the indwelling of the Spirit. That He is dealing with us in the center of our personalities. And it speaks of a permanent indwelling. If you're renting a house, if you're renting a house, you're, you're not going to be putting in where you have a gravel driveway. You're not going to be spending two or $3,000 to put in a, in a concrete driveway. And you're not going to put a new roof on the building. Uh, you're not going to build a new deck out back and have a renovation of the kitchen and put in all new electric and new plumbing. And uh, you're, you're not going to redo the attic and make an extra bedroom because you're just renting the house. But now if you own the house and you know you're going to be there from now on, why, you might fix everything about that house, right? And that's the Spirit. He's taken you to own you and possess you from now on. And as we'll see throughout eternity, 
One has described that, uh, this as the beginning of the eternal life. The life we have now, the Spirit working in us, is the beginning of that eternal life. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2.22, we're being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And, and it's not just you personally, but to think that the Spirit is dwelling in us corporately to build us into a building that brings glory to His name by our love and relationship to one another. He is active in us to make us into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit forever. So, the divine ownership, the indwelling of the Spirit... How can we say that, well, there are those who are Christians who don't have the Spirit and those who do? No, no. It's unthinkable. Unthinkable. It is the way Christ lays hold of His people and begins to transform us and change us. So we cannot separate the Spirit from the Word. We can't separate the Spirit from Christ. We can't separate the Spirit from a Christian. Okay. In all those ways. And... One last thing about the Spirit, just and, and really this is kind of a parenthesis in our study, but it needs to be stated that here in this passage we have the Spirit united to the Father and the Son for our salvation. So you can't separate the Spirit from the other persons in the Godhead. Okay, You can't separate the Spirit from the other persons of the Godhead. All are mentioned in this passage. It is the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. Christ, of course, is mentioned repeatedly. The Spirit is mentioned repeatedly. And there's no confusion here. It's not as though uh, in an early uh, heresy of the church, a guy named Sibelius, uh, supposedly, we only know his writings from those who wrote against him, but Sibelius was uh, a modalist, what we call uh, modalism, where God appeared to us in different modes or different faces. He appeared as a father, and then this one God appeared as a son, and then this one God appeared as a spirit. Modern-day United Pentecostals believe the same thing. That's why they'll say a Jesus only. This this is the form of God or the face of God that we have now is Jesus. Others would lean toward the Spirit as the face that God has shown Himself. But uh, in Scripture, earlier in Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians, he mentions the Father, the Son, and the Spirit distinctively, of course. And in John 17, Christ talks about the relationship He had with the Father before the world began. And later in this chapter, we hear of the Spirit working in our hearts to intercede for us before God. There's a relationship between the Spirit and the Father there. But here in this passage, what is so encouraging, these distinct persons, these, this fellowship of God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all united and engaged for our salvation, particularly here, our final salvation, our resurrection. The full Godhead engaged. And of course, the full Godhead must always be engaged because they never go separate ways. They're never divided. There's no dissonance within the Godhead. It's always united to move in the same direction to accomplish the same purpose and end. And it helps us to see the fullness of glory and power 
in this joint operation for our salvation. I love some of the, well, practically all of the wacky statements by Stephen Wright. And one of them is, uh, he says, I have a map of the United States. It's life-sized. One mile equals one mile. And then he said something like, I spent last weekend folding it. You know, and so you're just imagining this life-size, you know, map and folding up that map. Uh, he does things with sizes like that. He says, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it, right? Or he says, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? <laughs> yeah, right, you know. Where would you put it if you had everything? But all of this to say that uh, when you think of this huge map, this extension of everything, of, of the whole, you can kind of describe our salvation in that way, that it reaches the whole. That is the whole of God. There is no part of God. There's no aspect of God that is not completely engaged in your salvation. And so how thankful we can be that there is... Uh, while there's a distinction in the persons of the Godhead, we see here this united joint effort of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to bring about that final salvation, even the resurrection of believers. And you see that so wonderfully in verse 11. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. So there's the Spirit of the Father, but it's the Father who raised the Spirit from the dead. He who raised Jesus Christ will raise you as well. Well, let's talk then in our last few minutes about the resurrection, okay? So we've talked about the Spirit now just to emphasize some about the resurrection. First of all, from verse 10, death is no obstacle to resurrection. Death is no obstacle to to the resurrection. He says here that uh, though the body is dead because of sin, reflecting back to chapter 5, verse 12, where it says that death entered the world through sin and continued because of sin, our bodies are going to die uh, unless Christ comes again. And that's what he's talking about, that The principle of death is present. So he says the body is dead. It's headed for death. But then he says the spirit is life because of righteousness. This means that whatever, although the body is dead, what counters that, what trumps that death of the body is that the spirit is life and is absolute life. And though it is dying and will die unless Christ comes, the Spirit, it will be made alive. It will be made alive. And that's the point of verse 11. He will raise, He will give life to your mortal bodies. That idea of mortal bodies. Those bodies that are are destined for death. Those bodies that are weak, described by Paul in another place, and dishonored. Those bodies of humility, he describes in Philippians. Those bodies will be changed and there will be life brought to those mortal bodies through His Spirit. And isn't it encouraging that God the Father is being named by this little phrase, Him who raised Jesus from the dead. It's like a characterization of God, a definition of God. You want to know who God is? 
He who raised Jesus from the dead. That's who He is. That's the God that comes to you and me now. You mean, who... And that would be interesting to say, well, what's the definition of God? To start with, He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Well, that's, that is replete with meaning for us, isn't it? Well, what does that mean that He raised Jesus from the dead? Well, He raised me from the dead. Well, will He give me new life. Who is this God that did that? Why did He do that for Jesus? Well, it's so that He might change you as well. And when He describes it as the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, and He says, this Spirit of the Jesus Raiser is in you, therefore He will give life to your body. See the point? This Spirit obviously was heavily involved in raising Jesus from the dead, is the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And He of... uh, He dwells in you. The one who raised Jesus from the dead, His Spirit dwells in you. And if His Spirit dwells in you, He will overcome death and you will be raised from the dead as well because of the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the Spirit who dwells in you. And so it is the Spirit of the resurrecting Father. This is, He's begun life in you that will never end. It will never end. And this spirit, as Leanheart has said, he's the author of this communion with God and this life with God. He's the essence and sustainer of this life with God. And he's the one that brings about its consummation, this life with God. And so uh, this, this spirit is not going to be dishonored having taken you as his temple, that this temple is going to be lost. This life-giving Spirit is the one who indwells you, and He certainly is now the pledge, the guarantee, Paul describes Him in other places, of your inheritance, of your resurrection. You, You have to be raised, you see. Life has already begun in you, and the Spirit is permanently indwelling you, and He will not give up His property. Isn't that wonderful to think that you're the eternal abode of God? What will He do for His eternal abode? What will He do for you throughout your life? All the, all the time working toward that final day of the consummation of your life and the renewal of your life in Him. And so, the death is, the, is no obstacle to resurrection, but also, as we've just dealt with, the Spirit is the certainty of resurrection. He's the Spirit. This, the certainty of your resurrection. And notice this phrase, and we're, we're just about done, okay? Um, he says that you, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This is a wonderful phrase. Righteousness is comprehensive. It means God's powerful saving activity, His faithfulness to deliver us which is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ that brings us into a righteous standing with Him. So he says, because of righteousness, because of God's faithfulness, because of His powerful salvation that brought about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Spirit is life for you and not death. I want to read from an older writer, uh, Haldane. And he speaks of this indwelling of the Spirit and, and the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in 
their final issue of making us whole. Later, when we get to uh, verse 23, we're going to talk more about the resurrection of the body. But I'd like to close with this. This indwelling of the Spirit, which renders their resurrection certain, imports His love, that is, it shows His love, it manifests its government, the operation of His grace, and His care to adorn and beautify the temple in which He resides. So here's the Spirit. He loves you. He's indwelling you. He's governing you and possessing you. He's beautifying the temple in which He dwells. He's active, operating in your life. The end of it, the final end of it, is to confer everlasting life, everlasting purity, and everlasting communion with Himself. It would be derogatory to the majesty and glory of the Blessed Spirit to allow those bodies in which He dwelt as His temple to lie forever in ruins in the dust. That would be derogatory. It ain't going to happen, is what he's saying. The bodies are not going to lie in dust. Not his temples. Not his temples. They're going to be raised. And God who raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, will raise up the bodies of his people in virtue of that blood, which purchased not only the redemption of their souls, but also of their bodies. The power and effect of the three glorious persons of the Godhead are thus brought into view as securing the complete reestablishment of the bodies of believers that will protect the glories and blessedness of eternal life. I love that. The complete reestablishment of the bodies of believers in the glorious happiness of eternal life. How will it not happen? The Spirit is yours. And He is the Spirit of life. May we go forth encouraged as to what God is doing and will do in our lives. Let us pray. O Lord, we rejoice in what You've made us to be. We rejoice that though death might come to us, and at first it would look like a ghost or a phantom like the disciples thought they saw on the ocean, on the sea of Galilee. And death can be so frightening, it's so unknown, we don't know what it is that's coming at us. But then because you have taken the sting out of death, Lord Jesus, because death no longer is a punishment, but death brings us into your presence and it brings us into a situation in which we await for the final resurrection of our bodies. And because death is governed by your hand, your sovereign hand, as to when it happens and how it happens and the purpose of it in your hand, and that all things work together for good. And as death continually teaches us that we are weak and helpless and it teaches us to depend upon you all the more, then Lord that ghost that appears to us on the sea is none other in the end than Jesus Christ Himself who comes to us in every part of our life. He comes to us even in the midst of death, comforting us and saying, I have victory over this death. And though your mortal body die, yet the Spirit is life. And He who raised Jesus from the dead 
He who raised Messiah will raise Messiah's people. He will raise you. Oh, Lord, thank you that your Spirit indwells us even now as a permanent dwelling place of God, building in us individually and building us as a congregation, as a whole church, a dwelling place forever. Thank you, Lord, that you are renovating us and beautifying us. We are your temple. What else will you do? You are the Holy Spirit, and you will beautify us and make us holy. We rest in you, Lord Jesus, powerful Lord of heaven and earth, who's poured out your Spirit, that you've come to us in intimacy and power through your Spirit. You are with us, Jesus. You are in us, Christ, through your Holy Spirit. And we rejoice in this communion we have with you, this union we have with you. Oh, Lord, bless us. And we will go forth encouraged by the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And it is in His name we pray. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?